today, 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 uh, we're going to study in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 in just a minute. Uh, we got to finish up 16 and we'll move on. It won't, it won't take just a minute. Uh, <clears throat> flee sexual immorality. That's the subject uh, that the apostle's talking about. Uh, sexual misconduct of the members of the church there at uh, Corinth. Every sin that a man does is outside the body. Uh, uh, the body's not involved in sin. Uh, 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 drunkenness, uh, things of that nature, those are uh, external to us, something we put in us, something that uh, is wrong for us to do. But when it comes down to uh, fornication, now the body's involved. We're not supposed to involve the body in any kind of illicit activity because the body is the home of the Holy Spirit. That's where he dwells. Uh, he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body, which is the temple of God, of course. Uh, the last part of chapter uh, six is the, well, the body is the temple. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit dwells in you. The temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God. God has given you his Holy Spirit, and you are no longer your own. Why? You were bought at a price. Jesus paid the price, which was his blood. Therefore, since you belong to God, rather than committing fornication, it's your obligation to glorify God in your body and in your spirit, both of which are God's. Uh, it's, a, it's a little bit difficult, I think, for us to uh, differentiate between the elements of the body and the entire body being involved. Uh, but we have it from Paul that uh, fornication uh, is a, a very uh, a gross sin because it does involve the temple of God. If the Spirit of God dwells in me, how dare I use his home as a instrument of sin? That's what the apostle's saying. It's, uh, it's, it's wrong. Any way you look at it, it's wrong. Uh, it's something that we're not permitted to do. Um, we, our bodies belong to the, to the Lord. Um, we, we made a personal decision uh, to be joined to Christ, this is we wanted to do it, and we did it. And one of the things we were doing, obligated to do, when we made that decision and acted upon it, uh, was to give ourselves to the Lord. He purchased us with His own blood. We accepted the offer of grace, and now we have the obligation of glorifying God. And what that means is basically doing righteousness before all people so that people can see the Spirit of God in us. Uh, and of course, if we're engaged in sexual immorality, uh, it's not a very good picture uh, of God's holy temple. Uh, let's go on to chapter seven. He deals a little bit more with specifics. I think the questions he got was one of the reasons 
he's written about some of the things he's wrote about thus far. Uh, this is the second half of the book. Everything changes right here. Uh, now, concerning the things of which you wrote to me, uh, when you look at it, it's easy to see the, the uh, break in the letter right here. Uh, the things which you wrote to me. They wrote him a letter. And in that letter, uh, they had a bunch of questions they needed uh, answers to. Uh, there was probably some debate in the church as to what was right and what was wrong. It's hard to understand the pagan mentality, but they were, uh, they were grossly immoral, far beyond what we, most of us think uh, when we think about immorality. Uh, and a lot of the questions they would ask uh, would seem pretty elementary to us, but to them, obviously, it was a big deal because they, they sat down and they penned an epistle and they said, Paul, we've got some confusion here in the church. How about answering these questions for us? That's what he's saying. Uh, concerning your questions, that's what it boils down to. Uh, he's going to answer. So now we're going to spend time we're going to be reading Paul's answers by which we can try to uh, figure out what the questions were, okay? It's a, uh, can't be dogmatic about it. I mean, I, I think I know what some of the questions were, but I certainly wouldn't press my opinion over other people's. Uh, the answer is what, what really matters. Okay, <clears throat> to marry or not to marry, verses 1 through 7. Uh, he uses uh, the word touch, uh, and there's a lot of debate among scholars as to exactly what that word touch means. Uh, I'm, I'm very confident that he's talking about marrying. He's not talking about fornicating. He's talking about marriage, okay? Uh, there was a, a, t a time in history where uh, Paul was compelled to tell these people uh, that it's good not to marry, okay? Which is really weird because it contradicts what God said in the beginning of time. So we'll go through and take a look at it. Just keep that in the back of your mind. Uh, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. There's that word touch. Uh, this is the answer, of course, to their question. Uh, the question, I think, would have been, is it good for a man to touch a woman? Perhaps... More specifically, I think, is it good for a man to marry a woman, okay, during the uh, current situation? The question, oh, I don't know what all I've got here. I haven't seen this in a long time. Should a single man touch a woman? The word touch is a bugaboo for some people, but I think when we get down to about verse 7, I think we'll understand that the subject under consideration is actually marriage touch. Mary, okay, what does it mean? Uh, nevertheless, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. This is the rule, the general rule of a time. Nevertheless, there's a reason to depart from the general rule at that time. It is good for a man not to touch a woman. It is good for a man not to marry a woman. Nevertheless, you might be compelled to marry her anyway. And if so, are you sinning? Okay, that's, 
This is the logic going on in their minds. Because of sexual immorality, uh, that uh, sexual appetite that we have, let each man have his own wife, let each woman have her own husband. Okay? It is good for a man not to touch a woman. Nevertheless, because of the desire to commit sexual immorality, to commit fornication, let each man have his own wife, let each woman have her own husband. It is good for a man not to marry a woman, but if you can't restrain yourself, then go ahead and marry the woman, okay? This is the logic he's using. He'll, he'll explain it all as we go on, but it's a little bit hard to understand as, as we go through it. Uh, the statement is good for a man not to touch a woman actually contradicts what Jehovah said uh, in the beginning. It is not good for a man to be alone, okay? Paul's saying just the opposite. God said it's not good for Adam not to have a wife, and now here is Paul saying it is not good for you Corinthians to have a wife, okay? Why are you saying such a thing, Paul? What will compel you to do so? Uh, he'll explain. Oh, there it is, Genesis 2.18. It is not good that man should be alone. Paul said it is good for a man not to touch a woman. He's he saying the opposite. Now, Genesis 2.18, of course, is a general rule. It's not a, it's not a stand pat rule, an absolute rule. Uh, it is not good that man should be alone. It is good for some men to be alone. It is good for some women to be alone. Some people are better off alone than they are married. There's some people that way. They don't want a spouse. Nothing wrong with that. If they don't want a spouse, they don't want a spouse. You don't want to be dogmatic about things that we don't really understand. The law says it is not good that a man should be alone, and yet, well, look at Paul the Apostle. He was alone. Was it good for him? Uh, you have to take these, these laws as the Lord intended them. There's other places where uh, th there are examples of people who were not married throughout the Old Testament. So it wasn't a law that every man must have a wife and every woman must have a husband. That was not the law. But there was a general rule that most men are going to need a wife and most women are going to need a man, okay? But uh, it's not for everybody. Paul's saying it is good for a man to be alone uh, is he contradicting what Jehovah said? Well, it's very different. He's not contradicting him, but he's talking in a different uh, space and time. The situation's different. When Jehovah spoke those words, they were in the Garden of Eden. When Paul spoke those words, he, they're in the middle of very corrupt Corinth. And there was a lot of problems that Christians were facing. And given the situation, because it was so difficult to maintain faith in Christ in Corinth, Paul said, maybe it would be easier for you if you don't have a wife to worry about. And woman, maybe it would be easier for you if you don't have to worry about a husband or, or the children that might be born into your family. Maybe given the circumstances at Corinth, it's better to stay single. This is what the apostle is, uh, is getting across, or going to get across. 
You got to keep it in contact. You've got to understand what was going on in Corinth and how wicked that city was. I mean, it's on a par with Sodom and Gomorrah. It was a, it was a, a wickedly, a grossly immoral, wicked city. Uh, it is good for man not to touch a woman. Well, what does the word touch mean? Does it mean fornicate? It could. Okay, it could mean that. Uh, in Proverbs 6.29, he who goes in to his neighbor's wife, whoever touches her shall not be innocent. Does that mean lay his hand on her shoulder? Now, that's being silly. No, I'm not being silly. There's people who think this way. They, ne they never take things in context. They always try to be so literal with every statement found in the Bible, and it's not supposed to be that way. If you understand how law works, you'd understand these things. It's not that a man could not touch his neighbor's wife. People hug my BR all the time. If that's the case, they're violating the law. But that's not the case. Maybe I'll make it a law. BR is having too much fun. I'm not happy. Anyway, uh, he who goes into his neighbor's wife, whoever touches her shall not be innocent. Uh, someone could argue that by touch he means fornicate. That's possible. I disagree with it, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't make an issue out of it if somebody disagreed with me. Uh, doesn't mean marriage. That's what I think Paul's talking about, as I think I've already made clear. Hebrews 13 and 4, marriage is honorable among all. Uh, it's uh, something that uh, people are uh, certainly at liberty to be involved in. God, God made us this way. He made us with a sexual appetite. He made us in such a way that our urges can become so strong, our passions can become so strong that they occupy our mind all the time. If a man's got a favorite woman or a woman's got a favorite man, he can be around her and he can't think about anything else other than sexual intercourse. That's all he can think about because he wants this woman so bad. We have these desires built in us. That's why a bull mates with a cow or a male dog mates with a female dog. These are natural, God-given instincts that we possess. Now, Paul's saying, keep them under control and do not marry. But if you can't keep them under control, then you need to get married. It's better to get married than it is to burn, he'll eventually say. Uh, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Even though the law said marriage is honorable among all, Paul's now saying it is good for a man not to touch a woman. If you're like me, I believe that Paul the Apostle is the author of the Hebrews epistle. Now, if that's the case, he's contradicting himself, okay? But uh, he's not contradicting himself. Got to look at the context. Context, context, context. Uh, always think about the context. It's so important to look at that context. People make mistakes so many times. They'll take a verse and say, well, uh-oh, we can't do this. Or you got to do this. Look at the context and see if that's what the writer meant by what that one verse said. The Jewish view of marriage, all must marry. All men must marry. All women must marry. Uh, the Greeks and the Gentiles, uh, most of them agreed with that reasoning. But, but by the laws of Lycurgus, unmarried persons were prohibited 
from watching the public games. If you didn't have a wife or a husband and you were over a certain age, you couldn't go and watch the public games. They wouldn't let you in because something wrong with you. By the laws of the Spartans, bachelors were punished, men who refused to get married. They were punished for that, okay? Different thinking about marriage. Plato declares that all such unworthy of any honor, those who are unmarried. And to this, the commentator says, amen. Now, that's Adam Clark. He's a Methodist scholar. Uh, very, very knowledgeable man. But he was of the opinion that any able-bodied adult, any right-thinking adult, uh, would have to be married. That was Clark's opinion back in the 1800s. Uh, I, I disagree with it. I mean, I, I really like to read his stuff, but sometimes he's like me. Sometimes he's wrong. <clears throat> Some didn't think marriage was so good. Menander taught, if a man considers marriage from the proper point of view, it is an evil, but then it is a necessary evil. How are you going to propagate the earth if there isn't marriage? Corinth and sexual immorality. Boy, Corinth, I don't think anybody really understands Corinth. Man, Corinth was out there. They were, they were something else. They had mandatory celibacy and they had mandatory marriage. All in the same city, depending on what group you ran with. Uh, you had to stay single. That was the logic of this group. You had to get married. That was the logic of that group. Both coexisted in the same city. Open fornication, homosexuality, bestiality, pedophilia, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Everything was permissible in Corinth. Didn't matter. They did it in public. I mean, anything went in Corinth. It was a raunchy place. It'd be like being in Paris. It's a raunchy place. You see some of the things you can't believe you're seeing, but they're going on right there in a public park. No-fault divorce, easy remarriage. These things were all very permissible. Uh, there was a time in Corinth when such wasn't the case, when they were under Greek rule. Uh, the reins were held in much tighter, but since the Romans have been in charge, things have loosened up a great deal. Even though the Romans for 200 years never had a divorce. The first 200 years of the Roman Empire, there was no divorce. And then after 200 years, everything, that's the way it always goes, isn't it? You know, you got a nation that's doing the right stuff, and they get up and they become a great superpower, and all of a sudden, everything starts falling apart. Uh, that's what happened with Rome. So we have in Corinth, no-fault divorce, easy remarriage. Four types of marriage uh, that are um, viewed by the average Corinthian person per Roman law and custom. Number one, the marriage of slaves. That was one category. Number two, a, com a common law arrangement. You could live with somebody uh, according to the rules of common law when you had uh, access to the property and all that kind of stuff. Uh, you'd be paid alimony or whatever. Uh, even though you never officially got married, nevertheless, this common law rule would apply just like marriage law would. Third, when the female was sold into marriage, and that was pretty common then, uh, there was uh, female slavery. Today they call it human trafficking. 
You can call it human trafficking if you want to. It's slavery, any way you want to slice it. They're bringing women up uh, from all over the world to the southern border, and those women are held captive by these, uh, these groups that lead them from city to city to city to city all the way around the country. And they treat them as they choose to, dispose of them when they want to. They're slaves, okay? You think of it as human trafficking, but I think you're on the wrong track when you do that. Fourth, uh, the marriage of the nobles. These, of course, were the, uh, the important folks. <clears throat> there were four categories according to, according to Roman law and custom. It was a, a strange situation by our standards. Because of sexual immorality, fornication, uh, if that's the case, let each man have his own wife. Let each woman have her own husband. Now they are in raunchy, raunchy, raunchy Corinth, notwithstanding. Paul didn't go along with the norms of Corinth. He rose above them. He got his head up above the stink of the city, and uh, he held on to the uh, teachings of Jehovah. Uh, you got each man and each woman. Each man is to have his own wife, not a husband, but a wife. And each woman was to have her own husband. Now, in, in Corinth, homosexuality was very rampant. Lesbianism was very rampant. Uh, this was the way of the, the modern person uh, 2,000 years ago. Uh, notwithstanding, Paul didn't try to blend the two philosophies together. Uh, he held on to the rule that God gave since the beginning of time. Each man have a wife, each woman have her own husband. It is good for a man not to touch a woman. Nevertheless, because of sexual immorality, if you can't control your passions, let each man take his wife. Let each woman take her husband. Better to marry than to burn, okay? And at the time, uh, the Christians in Corinth were being persecuted. And it was a, it was a hard time. It was a very hard time uh, for Christian people during the first century. The same was true in Rome, actually. Uh, Christians were persecuted uh, by Nero Caesar, of course, as you know. This is something that went on uh, quite often throughout the Roman Empire. Let the husband render to his wife the affection due her, and likewise also the wife to her husband. If the woman uh, uh, needed to be held by the husband, wink, wink, nod, nod, then he was to hold her, and vice versa. You don't say no. You don't say, I got a headache. If the wife wants her husband, then the husband is supposed to be there for his wife. When the husband wants the wife, the wife's supposed to be there for the husband. Now, there could be times when a person is truly sick, but what I'm suggesting is you can't use it as leverage over somebody else. Well, he'll go on to explain the wife does not have authority over her own body. She doesn't belong to herself anymore. The husband has authority over her body, and the same thing is true with the wife. The husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. You see, women had rights. It wasn't a, such a male-dominated society as we might think it was. If the wife wanted her husband, he was obliged to be there for her, just like the wife was obliged to be there for the husband. 
Why? Because you belong to her and she belongs to you. Uh, and don't, don't refuse one another. And the reason's obvious. Uh, because of the sexual desires that your husband has, if you say no to him too many times, he's going to turn to somebody else. You may lead him, cause him to sin because he needs that gratification from time to time. So when he needs you, you be ready, whether you're the husband or the wife. <clears throat> Do not deprive one another, withhold yourself from one another, unless you consent, you agree with among yourselves, the husband and wife, we're not going to uh, 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 know each other for uh, a month, okay? We're going to stay away from each other for one month, 30 days. Uh, there will be no uh, intercourse. That you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer. Uh, of course, the husband and wife may decide on it, I suppose, for another reason as well. Uh, but in this case, it has to do with uh, spiritual reasons, uh, fasting and prayer. Fasting is a sacrifice, okay? When you give yourself to sacrifice, one of the things you may sacrifice is your indulgence uh, sexually. So there may be an agreement between a husband and wife where they decide for 30 days we're not going to come together. We're going to give ourselves to fasting and prayer. And then come together again when the 30 days are up so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Uh, your needs, uh, I'm not going to say the devil made you do it, but your needs can become so strong you may be inclined to do something you wouldn't otherwise do because you're caught in a weak moment knowing that Satan's going to strike. So when time's up, come together again as husband and wife so that neither one of you will have a, a roaming eye afterward. But, but I say this as a concession and not as a commandment. Concession, concession means permission. Uh, I say this as a permission rather than a commandment. Paul's advice was given by way of permission, not an injunction. He's leaving the details of their lives, celibate or married, to the conscience of each person. He's not imposing his thoughts on anyone. He's expressing his point of view, his opinion, and he's trying to make that crystal clear. Paul freed them from both human and unauthorized restrictions. These are the rules you can live by. And a lot of it has to do with personal preference. Uh, verses 1 through 5 is what he's talking about as being a concession or per by permission. It is good for a man not to touch a woman. Uh, he was permitted to say such a thing, and they had permission to do as they seem fit, whether to marry or not to marry. For, or because, I wish that all men were even as my, I myself, unmarried. Well, was Paul really unmarried? That's debatable. Uh, I don't have time to go into a, a complete uh, study on the matter. But uh, was Paul ever married before this time? 
some say he was a member of the Sanhedrin. But to be a member of the Sanhedrin, you had to have been married. You had to have a wife. If he was a member of the Sanhedrin, he would have had to have a wife, which means, of course, the wife he had uh, is no longer with him for whatever reason. There's a lot of questions that come up about Paul that we do not have the answers to, okay? There are no answers. We don't know what his status was, though it does appear at this moment in time he didn't have a wife. He could have had a wife and divorced her. He could have had a wife and she passed away sometime in the past. I don't know. Nobody knows that. We have no record of it. I, nothing in history I know of that even suggests it. There's a lot of people that says he had a wife. There's a lot of people that says that uh, later, uh, near the end of his life, uh, he married uh, Lydia. Remember Lydia that uh, they preached to on the Sabbath one time? Uh, some say he married her. Whether that's true or not, I don't even know. But that would have been after this time. At this time, he was not married. Now, what are you saying, Paul? I wish that all men were even as I myself. I think he means unmarried. But each one has his own gift from God, his own ability, uh, the ability to control certain aspects of his life. One in this manner and another in that. We're different. We're all different. Some people have a, a, a very fierce sexual appetite. Somebody else doesn't. We're different. And it, he's, he's having to be very flexible with people because each is going to have to decide for themselves what to do. I'm recommending you don't get married, but I understand if you need to get married. Matthew 25, 15, the Lord talked about the parable of the talents. We're different in many ways. The Lord has given us certain traits and qualities, certain gifts, and it's all discussed there. It's his doing, not ours. Boy, I'm glad we got past that. Uh, the second section is verses 8 through 16, divide guideline, guidelines for marriage. But I say to the unmarried and to the widows, it is good for them if they remain even as I am. If you're unmarried, you're better off to stay unmarried. If you're a widow, you're better off to stay a widow. The times are rough. Times are hard. And the less you are responsible, the better your life's going to be. It's one thing for me to lay down my life for my faith. It's another thing to have to lay down BR's life for my faith. You, I'm not like you. I would have trouble. Watch him, Debbie. You heard that, didn't you? You're mean. I say to the unmarried and to the widows, it is good if they remain uh, unmarried and widowed. Uh, unmarried is, oh, I just went through all that stuff. Uh, thinking things through. I was Paul for it? I want to do this. Was he a widower? Was he divorced? We don't know. Was Paul married at a later time? We don't know. Sometime after he wrote this letter, we do not know. I know of several historians that say he married Lydia. Uh, I don't know if that's true or false. I have no reason to believe it's true. <clears throat> what was Paul's, oh, 
How much have I got on this? Paul appears to be single when he wrote this letter. Was he previously? Oh, this is stuff. I was. Oh boy. If Paul was, uh, if he was married at that time, where's his wife? Abandoned, divorced, widow. We don't know. Okay, that's all that I've already said. Don't worry about that. Uh, why remain unmarried? First Corinthians seven again, in verse twenty-six. He said, "I suppose, therefore, that this is good to remain unmarried." because of the present distress, because of the sufferings you are being exposed to. I think it's good not to get married. Less responsibility makes life easier. That it is good for a man to remain as he is in an unmarried state. And this I say for your own profit. It's not uh, that he's trying to be mean but uh, he knew uh, how hard times were going to become. He not only knew what was going on, he had an inside track to what was coming. And he said, I do believe it'd be best to only be responsible for yourself, not to put a leash on you, but for what is proper, that you may serve the Lord without distraction, that you don't have to worry about a spouse, which you do. If you got one, we all know it, and you worry more about your spouse than you do yourself. It's easier to die than it is to give license for somebody to make your wife die or your children die. Jesus also touched on the matter of celibacy just a bit. Back in Matthew 19 and verse 12, he was talking about eunuchs. He said there are eunuchs. Uh, Sterile. There are eunuchs, men who are sterile. They were born that way from their mother's womb. They're, they're sterile. Uh, there are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men. Uh, when people bought slaves, uh, they would sterilize them, castrate them, especially those who were going to be working in the house, going to be around the women folk. They would uh, castrate those guys. Uh, Daniel, uh, he was a eunuch. Daniel and his friends, uh, it was very common uh, throughout history that the men who were going to be involved anywhere in the neighborhood where women were, uh, were castrated. They, be, they, were, they became eunuchs, and this was done by the hands of other men. And there are eunuchs, they made themselves eunuchs uh, for the kingdom of heaven's sake. Not that they were literally castrated, but they figuratively castrated themselves because uh, they would have uh, nothing to do with the opposite sex uh, in that manner. Jesus spoke of three kinds. Born that way, made that way by men, those who choose to be that way. The Lord was a figurative eunuch. He didn't have a wife. He chose not to marry. But he suffered all passions, just like we do. But he overcame his passions. He overcame his temptations. And he remained celibate all of his life. He who is able to accept this, Jesus said, let him accept it. That's the way it is. It's the way some things are. 
I say to them, married to the widows, it is good for them if they remain even as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, let them marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Uh, that would be worse than ever. Uh, to marry would not be a sin. To fornicate would. Better to marry. Uh, from the word burn is from the Greek pyru. means uh, to burn, to fiery, be on fire, try or be tested. Fornication uh, can also be committed in the mind, as the Lord taught in Matthew 5.28. And that, too, could be the result of, most likely it would be the result of, uh, a person who is celibate and incapable of controlling their passions. The mind will wander. And you can commit sin that way, too, as Jesus taught. Uh, it's a spiritual type of fornication, nonetheless just as deadly. Now, to the married I command, yet not I. See how he's breaking this into different sections? Now, a lot of times when uh, people examine the text here, they don't break it into these sections. They, they kind of take it like Paul's talking to everybody at one time. But you can see he's breaking it down to different groups, to the unmarried, uh, to the widows, uh, to the married now, I command, yet not I, but the Lord. It's not my expression, not my opinion being offered here, not what I think to be wise being offered here. This is something that Jesus dealt with during his own ministry. Matthew 5, 32 and 19, 9, he dealt with the subject of marriage. A wife is not to depart from her husband. She's not to leave him. But even if she does depart, let her remain unmarried. Uh, God said, do not depart from your husband. But if she does, he said, remain unmarried. Uh, I don't know. But it appears to me that the Lord, knowing the hearts of all people, uh, may have, well, he did know that there would be some husbands, for example, who would be brutally mean to their wives or their wives and their children. Uh, he would beat them mercilessly. What's a wife to do? The law says you, you, can't, you can't get a divorce except in the case of fornication. So the woman has to stay here and put up with this nonsense? No, the general rule, do not depart. But there could be this circumstance over here where this wife has to depart for her own sake as well as for the sake of her children. Well, if that is the case, you can't marry somebody else. You have to remain unmarried. Why? Because you have a husband. You may have departed from him. According to state laws, you may divorce him, which means nothing to God a woman may have to do that in order to get compensation or alimony or child support, all permissible. But in order to do that, they got to get a divorce. Well, it's only a state divorce, so it means absolutely nothing 
Until the Lord gives you a divorce, no one is divorced. He's the one that married us. And only he can divorce us. And there's no judge in this country that can. Except for the sake of benefits. When it gets into that legal stuff, that's the way it has to be done. In an ideal world, that decision will be made by the church. But we're not in an ideal world. So such circumstances uh, may exist. Well, they do exist, and we all know it. If the wife has to depart, which could happen, she's not to get married again. Or if she chooses, she could be reconciled to her husband. He may come to her and say, uh, I'm sorry. I'm not going to ever do that again. And she may believe him. And hopefully he means what he says. Uh, if that's the case, she can go back to him. It's all right. Uh, but that's the only man she can go to. She can't go to any other. And the husband, you know, he's in the same boat. He's not to divorce his wife either. But again, uh, strange circumstances could arise, which may, I know a man, for example, uh, who was a truck driver. And of course, uh, you know how long they're on the road, and he was over, over the whole country truck driver, and uh, got to have some sleep. His wife wouldn't let him go to sleep when he was home. You know, what are they home? Two or three days? She would not let that man sleep. She kept him awake the whole time he was home. And then he had to crawl back in that truck and take off again. He got one eye open and one eye shut. This went on for a very long time. I wasn't directly involved with it. I did talk to him a few times. But uh, uh, he couldn't take it anymore. Uh, he, he was to the point it was either divorcer or killer. One or the other, something's going to have to give. And uh, he chose uh, divorce in that case. He left her. He departed from her. But he had to remain unmarried. And when the time came to make that decision, he said, I will remain unmarried. Six months later, he was married. All that for nothing. Okay, uh, we'll have to stop here and resume again next hour.